Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. A good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the managing director at Cyber Theory. We are running our podcast today around a topic that we call Secrets in the Code. Today's episode will focus on day zero supply chain vulnerability. With me today is Moshe Ziani, the VP of Security Research at Apiro, an early stage cybersecurity company founded in 2019, whose purpose is to help security and development teams proactively fix risk across the software supply chain before releasing to the cloud, which is very cool in my estimation. Backed by Greylock and Kleiner Perkins with a $35 million A round, I think, they are well on the way to a market leadership position in the space. And, and some of what they've done so far is they're the current winner of the pretty prestigious RSA Sandbox Innovation Award. They were named a Gartner 2021 Cool Vendor in uh, DevSecOps. They um, found that detected a day zero supply chain security vulnerability on Kubernetes-based Argo CD platform. And they've been a frequent contributor to the NIST 800-218 Secure Software Development Framework. So Moshe has been researching security for over 20 years in multiple industries and specializing in penetration testing, detecting algorithms and incident response, constant contributor to the hacking community, has been co-founder of the Shabakon Security Conference for the past six years. So welcome to the show, Moshe. I'm glad you could join me today. Thank you, Steve. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. Let's jump right in. We all know that traditional AppSec is uh, failing modern enterprises and that we've got many hidden risks in open source API security. In fact, you guys published a report, I think, entitled Secrets in the Code, which eloquently describes the business industry impact of your research, along with some actionable insights for practitioners. Can you give us an overview of that? Sure. So as a backdrop, Secrets in Code uh, is something that uh, many developers and security professionals have been pointing out throughout recent years, but it's, but it's of course, is, as, is as old as code exists. Simply put, it is the fact that developers are putting into their code some strings uh, or some artifacts that are there without a real reason or at least not a secure reason to do uh, to do the same thing with a secure string or maybe some alternative that we have currently like vaults or something. So instead they're using hard-coded secrets. A secret can be a password, a token that can be utilized again, a cloud service or something in, uh, something in, this, uh, in this spirit. And by using that, sometimes they uh, neglect it in code. And once this code is, is open source to the world, some other hacker can pick it up from the source itself and utilize it for their own good. Their permissions there or authorization that you get from those code tokens are, is, of course, varies uh, between different uh, suppliers and providers. But in general, you can think of the most common examples are 
like tokens to a specific API service that can give you maybe uh, some credentials to implement or to access cloud services and cloud resources of the organizations. So this is the backdrop of why we actually went through um, the research uh, method and eventually uh, resulted in the report that you've uh, just mentioned. And in this report, we found, uh, we took like uh, something around the uh, 20 different organizations with different scale, with different industries. And through those uh, organizations, we actually scanned pretty rigorously all of their commits. Commits are the single piece of code that are being uh, pushed into an open source repository. And we reached 2 million commits overall. And by those commits, we have a very good grasp of how secrets behave in code, how developers are, are, are wrongly put their secrets in their code, and also what kind of what can we learn from those kind of behaviors? Is there something that we can point out as a pattern? And of course, uh, the result is uh, the report, so you can guess there are some patterns that are uh, most uh, interesting to explore and to add to the decision-making processes within security professionals and organizations once they have their plan or strategic plan put into place. Yeah, and aren't there quite a few dependencies, you know, downstream dependencies on other open source programs that are called by some of these APIs and and uh, other open source code that no one has any idea what, what those are? Or are people, I guess the question is, how do we vet is it even possible to vet the percentage of code that we that we reuse from these libraries? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Uh, and of course, a very complex answer. I'll try to do it briefly. The short answer is that you can assess at least the risk of having a specific package or dependencies uh, that you use and import into your code. Uh, there is a limit to it, of course, because everything can be seen as a risk. And what we are proposing, and we, all, we actually have another project, an open source project for that, named the Dependency Compopulator, which is doing exactly that. It's taking into account multiple intelligence feeds and metadata of the packages and trying to assess what is the risk of using this kind of import, of using this kind of package. There are different ways to go about uh, this kind of route of intelligence over packages. You can maybe scan them. You can actually went through a code review practice with them. But this is, of course, a very laborious and expensive uh, in resources of an effort to go about every kind of open source dependency that you are using, that this number is just accumulating over time and, uh, and from our uh, perspective, uh, never go down. We, we all see the trend of using more and more open source. There is good reason for that. This, is, this saves a lot of time. This, is, this becomes a standard. And by that, you can implement and produce better and also faster software to production. So we don't see a retraction from this kind of trend, quite the opposite. Yeah, I know. And, I, you know, the, uh, I mean, I understand the, the, the need for, you know, if we're driving so desperately to digitalization and, and the you know, fourth revolution and all of that, I see the need for, you know, agile development, of course. But, you know, I mean, at some point, don't you say, you know, the cost is far outweighed. I mean, to do it, to do it in a safe, 
context, isn't the cost far outweighing the benefit? Uh, it's amazing to me. I know you guys have yeah. developed some best practices also when it comes to, you know, ethically reporting and patching these vulnerabilities. And can you help our audience understand what a few of these might be? And do they include, you know, if we run into a secret, for example, or, or the dependency that you're working on now, do you alert the DevSecOps team or how does that work? Again, this is a very good point on both cases and on once you find a vulnerability or you find a secret, which can be seen as a subset of a, a vulnerability in code, some kind of a weakness that you are exposing. So in general, yes, there is a responsible disclosure process. If you are internal to the organization, this should be easy for you. You should contact your immediate AppSec engineer or AppSec uh, representative, and by that, uh, acknowledge them that should they should uh, respond to this kind of incident. By that, they need to, of course, first of all, remediate, meaning that they need to revoke the token after they are rotating it into a more secure way and fixing the code to be supporting of that. On dependencies, quite the same. If you find a dependency with a vulnerability, you acknowledge that to the to your uh, closest representative. If you are external to the organization, that's a bit more complicated, but uh, fortunately we have many processes around that. It's collectively called uh, responsible disclosure, meaning that you are disclosing a vulnerability or maybe a weakness, as we mentioned, the secret to an organization. Hey, listen, you have this kind of, uh, of an issue and you also would like to extend and, and explain sometimes why this is an issue. What kind of business impact does this, does this issue has over business and over the organizations? Once you have that, you are filling up a short report, maybe an email, maybe they have some kind of a bug bounty program, which is another way to support this kind of disclosures. And by that, you can go about and just disclose this kind of information safely to the organization. Uh, you can look up for uh, more mature organizations will have their contact in the front page just as for security matters. Uh, and of course, every kind of uh, respectable corporate will have this kind of process one way or another. Yeah, and I assume that that means that we want to only work with mature organizations with that have ways of interacting and contacting to make sure that we're able to, you know, do that responsible disclosure and have them act on it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we, this is one measurement for you to measure if those kind of, if you've just mentioned dependencies, just to measure if this, this, this dependency is being mature enough in terms of security, you can see if there were any kind of vulnerabilities in the past. You can see if they have a uh, process uh, installed uh, in order to contact their security advisory or security board. And by that, you can assess at least their seriousness and their maturity in terms of security processes. This is a great indicator. Yeah, I must agree. Yeah. So are you attempting to do that in an automated context or do you simply return the discovered dependency to a manual process where people then have to look it up? So we do both. It really depends on uh, on what the customer needs, and uh, you can uh, you can you can set it up as as you will. If you'd like to have just as a 
uh, an alert or something that will be notifying you about this kind of discrepancy, maybe a vulnerability found in dependency. So you'll be able to manually act upon. And also uh, on many vulnerabilities, there are automation processes in place. So you can just forget about it and say you want to be automatic. Most of the organizations will have some kind of a mix for high impact uh, vulnerabilities, excuse me, high impact on the business. They would like to assess it manually. Either way, they can break. Uh, for example, if you just need to update the dependency version, uh, you will need to test it first uh, by a human being. Maybe in the future, that will be even better. So we'll, we'll be able to just uh, reduce this kind of effort as well. But currently, every kind of uh, high business impact application will have to have some kind of a manual analysis and manual testing before releasing it to, to a stable state. You can choose for at least for the time being, if you would like, for example, just to have it as a beta for testing or maybe for some cutting edge and someone that would like to, to have the risk overturned, they be able to automatically update for the latest version and then just use it as is. Yeah, I got it. Ransomware is continuing to be a thorn in everybody's side and is growing like crazy for all the obvious reasons. You've got advice on how organizations can best mitigate future ransomware attacks and specifically around supply chain and open source security. I know a lot of people that would love to hear the answer to that question. How do you mitigate future ransomware attacks? When we are discussing uh, ransomware, or if we can generalize it a bit for any kind of malware activity, malware can be directed and can be implemented, not just, of course, by ransomware, but I agree with you that ransomware is the most prominent attack vector once you have a foothold into the organizations. Uh, And what we are foreseeing and what we are proposing, especially around the supply chain, and there were supply chain ransomware attacks, uh, is to, to defend your code as early as you can. And also, that means that uh, there is a trend called shift left, meaning that you would like to have as much as those kind of things and validation done as soon as possible, not once, not just once you are going to production. And the second uh, rule of thumb here is if you have something more closer to the, to the actual production systems, what you'll be able to do is to lock down the versions, lock down the, the specific cases, that, specific dependencies that you have. And by that, even if someone is, let's say, have a man-in-the-middle attack over your dependencies, you'll be able to validate and by the signature and by the fingerprint of those kind of dependencies that you, you actually get what you're expecting. So nothing like, uh, for example, a very common mistake uh, in those kind of cases that can lead to those kind of attacks potentially is to leave it to the dependency to be able to pull down the latest version instead of the specific version that you know that is safe to use. And by that, every time that uh, this uh, build will go up, it will request the latest version without acknowledging what kind of certificate or what kind of fingerprint should, should this version have. And this is called a locking, a version locking. So you lock the version. You can also add to that on many package managers, the actual fingerprint of the package. And by that, you ensure that at least you won't be harmed, harmed by a new kind of attack through the supply chain, uh, through dependencies, if that makes sense. Okay. How much post-sales support and training do you guys have to provide to get your customers to fully extract value from the solution? 
I would say not much. First of all, we are in very close contact with our customers. As a startup, of course, we have this kind of agility to fit their needs pretty quickly. And we, we, we are going through the rule of thumb that if it doesn't make sense the first time you look at it, it, it maybe will make sense at the third or fourth time you will, but that, that's something that we are uh, refraining from. We are trying to make the system approachable, meaning that the u- user experience itself should reflect uh, native flows of organizations and not enforcing the organizations to our will and our own processes and what we think they should do. The second thing we are doing, it's it, the whole system is interconnected with your current processes. So it won't make up new processes if you don't like to. The workflows that we can build for you are automatic and are suitable for your ticketing system, maybe for your instant messaging systems like Slack, like Teams, etc. And by that, we are leaving the ecosystem instead of instructing it. Do you think you can scale that then as you grow? Absolutely. Currently, the uh, the way that we are doing that is, first of all, we are cloud-native ourselves. Uh, so by that, the scalability uh, that we, uh, if we have any kind of scalability requests, it's pretty easy to do. Our DevOps teams are pretty used to that. And we are also uh, always preparing ourselves to, to much more than we are currently withholding. And of course, we are looking into more and more customers. We have huge customers on our portfolio. And by that, we are pretty confident with that. But of course, we are always checking those kind of assumptions. We don't want anyone to be hogged down by resources or anything similar to that. And the process itself is pretty easy. So it can be ramped up in, onto uh, the Apiro platform in, in a matter of less than a day, uh, even less than, uh, some, than several hours sometimes, depends on your size. And the analysis itself will also kick in as soon as possible. So you'll have your repositories analyzed in a, in a few hours. What size customer is your ideal prospect or your ideal end user in terms of um, uh, you know number of people? Or obviously, they have to have a DevSecOps team. How big does that have to be? Yeah. So this is the funny thing. Uh, We are, uh, first of all, we are seeing a lot of different customers in terms of structure. So sometimes they will have their own DevSecOps team. Sometimes they they will have DevOps team and not DevSecOps team. Sometimes they won't have either and they, they maybe will have a single entity named AppSec engineer or AppSec professional to, to go about and uh, do the work of AppSec, application security, excuse me. And by that, the whole purpose of the Appear system is to uh, save you those kind of resources. You won't, you won't need, uh, if, if before that, you'll let's say you need uh, 10 people to, uh, to exercise application security throughout your supply chain, uh, Puro is diminishing those numbers to a single digit and on the low end of it. Uh, the, the purpose of it is to make the clutters of the alerts and the alarms that you have, all, uh, all the bells and whistles that goes off every time. You will have the minimum amount that you need and the very focused one dealing with the duplication, dealing with automations of those kind of processes. So in general, our idea of, a, of, a, of an organization will, will have to be something that, some organization that will have at least one application security personnel that, that, that can be a DevSecOps, that can be a DevOps, and that can be an AppSec professional. In terms of number of developers, you can go up to uh, the hundreds of thousands. But in general, uh, th- that's the whole idea. The, the system is scalable. 
we are learning as much as we can from uh, from those kind of de- development de- developer behavior. So if you have more developers, that will make uh, uh, much more value. But if uh, if even if you have quite a few, even in the numbers of tens developer, uh, a few tens of developers, it's still going to be uh, much valuable information and insights about who is doing what, how what is the timeline of each material change in the code, what kind of code uh, impacts you more than that something else and the risks that every code commit is contributing to your to do to your repositories and of course you decide what to do with it and we aid you with our workflows and automations around remediation and measurement yeah yeah I see and that's got that's got to be one of your key value propositions as well right yeah. that people don't have to stand up a whole, DevSecOps team, they and if they don't have one, that's fine too because you're actually doing that work. Exactly. We have some very good indications on that from customers that uh, they applaud us on several occasions. And uh, recently, on past months, uh, everyone had those kind of uh, VIP CVEs, meaning vulnerabilities of very high impact into the industries. And instead of spending hours, maybe days, maybe weeks, some customers said that the, their peers in the industry spent weeks in order to discover all of the weaknesses they have. It took uh, took them with a much less of a, of a much much fewer uh, application security professionals, and within a few hours, they had all the information they needed to mitigate and to spot every every weakness in every vulnerability that was that were discussed in the, those kind of events. So this is a very good assurance to the impact and to the philosophy that we are taking with the Apure platform. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's great. We talk about numbers a little bit here. That you know you. In the difference between private and public repositories, you you discovered that I don't know it was like eight times the number of exposed secrets in privates. Can you tell the diff- our listeners the difference between private and public repositories, and why that we'd have eight times the number of exposed secrets in private repositories? Yeah, sure. So uh, the there is a technical answer to that, and there is a uh, I would say psychological uh, psychological aspect of it. So first of all, the technical answer is that private versus public. A public repository is something that you quite uh, not surprisingly opening up to the world and to the public so everyone can can see your code. Uh, The reasons for that uh, vary. Sometimes it's something that you would like to share because you would like to share something with the community or maybe some, some kind of a support to other customers that you have yourself or you have an open source uh, repository that you are maintaining. The private repositories, which are the funny thing is that they are much more common than the public ones in organizations, of course, is your code that you don't, you don't want to expose to the world. So this is the technical aspect of, of uh, repositories, private versus public. The other aspect of it is more a psychological and organizational level aspect is that what you do with those kind of private repositories. Those private repositories hold your crown jewels. And another difference is that those private repositories have maybe a different threat actor attacking or, or influencing the risk of those kind of repositories. And what we found in the research is that, as you said, you have eight times the number of secrets on those kind of private repositories. This is the first of any kind of report that covered internal repositories to the to this breadth. And by that, you can also think or at least correlate the fact 
that developers and every organization feel much more safer to keep their code uh, within their uh, realms. And by that, some secrets can slip in much more heavily. And also, you, you, they will never expect those kind of secrets to go out. So they will assume this is uh, safer and maybe they shouldn't act upon it as uh, furiously as they will be um, on public repositories. But this is completely false. First of all, many accidents uh, that we've, uh, we've encountered and aided in those kind of incidents try to convey the message that some of those accidents begin with the private repositories, but then sometime in the future, this code snippet or maybe the whole repositories become public. The second thing is that if those private repositories are private, that doesn't mean that uh, that no one can see that and uh, accept the specific developer. Quite the opposite. In those kind of organizations, many have those kind of access and something uh, like a, a snippet can slip through, someone can copy-paste something to an unsecured device, and by that you see those kind of, uh, of private repositories. Maybe the most notorious case of the past year was the Twitch leak, which the streaming service uh, have been hacked sometime in the past and in 2021 and the end of 2021 we saw the leak itself a few gigabytes of code and we saw how many this is pretty confirming to this kind of aspects how many uh, secrets uh, there were in twitch's code doesn't mean that twitch is uh, is any different from any kind of other organization it just confirms the fact that those kind of secrets are much more prevalent in uh, internal repositories wow <laughs> you know it's as it gets more complicated, the human factor gets more important, doesn't it? Across the board, whether it's, you know, server configurations or open source code or the kind of mistakes that humans make just naturally. I mean, people are people, you know, so it's it's always interesting to me. Uh, it's also interesting that I think you said that over a third of the secrets that you detected uh, your research detected happened in the first quarter of the year. What is the uh, correlation between that time of year and the number of secrets? Yeah, I'm happy you're bringing that up because for me, it's the uh, most revealing fact from the report, maybe, and maybe most surprising to many. But when you think about it, what the, the actual the actual uh, report stated that 34.34% of secrets that were found were added to those repositories during the first few months, during the first quarter of the year. This is spanning, uh, the, the research itself spanned throughout multiple years. So, and we saw this kind of very clear cadence that you have in the, from the beginning of the, of the year to the end of it, you have some kind of a sine wave uh, throughout. And the correlation that we found, and we also discussed it with, uh, uh, with experts and some on, and organizations themselves. By the way, I haven't mentioned until now that the report itself have been vetted and been validated and discussed with uh, 15 different external, ex ex external experts on the field of application security. Uh, some of them are our customers, some of them are uh, champions of application security globally, and they have reviewed and, and gave, gave their insights as well. And part of what we received there is that uh, many organizations have this kind of rotation uh, cadence of secrets within their organization quite naturally. Maybe it's the beginning of the year, maybe sometime uh, else inside a fiscal year that needs to be rotated because you are uh, re, uh, reiterating over licenses, 
And maybe they just had a very good year sometime and they have this kind of a, a very aggressive uh, recruitment. So they have much more new uh, employees and by that new developers uh, makes much more mistakes. Another fact that we, that we put on the report itself, by the way. Uh, so we see this kind of seasonality, first of all, because of organization cadences outside of secrets, but affecting secrets indirectly. And also uh, we can think of the holidays especially the U.S. holidays are happening at the end of the year. Uh, so something along those lines also can affect the uh, holiday time that uh, people take and then return. Maybe it's, a, it's overburdening for the application security team that is always uh, in a stress of, uh, of accomplishing more. So they, they have less time for code reviews and they can't really stop the whole flood of secrets at uh, those kind of times of year. Those are all, of course, assumptions and correlations and we can't really prove one-to-one, uh, -one, but we see those kind of correlations uh, pretty strongly, especially on the seasonality and, and the rotation uh, factor that, that I've mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'd love to get a copy of that report if it's now public, and uh, perhaps you can email me some a version that's been approved. Sure, sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I'd to, love to, uh, to I, It's yeah, worth promoting for sure. Uh, this Thank is a this is a huge problem. You know, it's right up there in my mind with all of the other <laughs> complicating factors around our networks being way too complicated at the moment, and and our approaches relying way too much on human on the human factor. I think, but we're near the end of our time here, and I, I wanted you to have you confirm that I think a brief way to summarize Apiro that you guys uh, discover, remediate, and measure every API service uh, dependency and sensitive data in the CICD pipeline to map the application attack surface, right? Right. Together with contextual knowledge about the risks themselves, like what is a material change, what kind of technologies are you using, if the actual code change was affecting authorization, authentication, storage, or anything along those lines and, and much more, all this contextual knowledge gives us the power to really recommend and to score risks according to your normalization of the organization and not just by a ad hoc, something agnostic to your kind of organization. The context is everything and it's no different with these kind of risks. Yeah, sure. And, and this all happens pre-production, right? Pre-entry pre into the production stream in the crowd in the cloud. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. So who are some of your more notable customers that folks would recognize? And then what competitors would folks expect to find when looking for a, a code risk platform? Do you, is that a category, by the way, the code risk platform category? Is that is that a Gartner thing or did, did you guys conceive that? I don't think it's a Gartner category. The Gartner closest thing is the CNAP or the Cloud Native Application uh, uh, Protection Platform. And by that, I, I can mention a few. Of course, uh, I can't mention every kind of customer that we have, but just to name a few, we have Sophos, Platica, Chegg, TripActions, Imperva, uh, Rivian, uh, MindGeek, Rakuten, and, and many more on our platform. And if you just notice the, the whole line there, there are diverse customers from, from many industries, uh, any shape and size. And this is, of course, gives us a lot of, uh, of, of joy working with those kind of uh, big customers that uh, knows how to run application security programs. And by that, 
they enjoy the expert platform that gives them their, this kind of contextual power. Yeah, I'm sure. In terms of competitors, how, I know you guys are early. Have there been a bunch of competitors that, that have been sort of creeping up, or do you have any serious competitors that you worry about? I don't think it. I think it's too early to really designate a competitor. Every there, there is a lot of cloud-related uh, uh, startups and solutions, but every everyone are, is is doing their thing uh, uh, very much differently, and we are not excluding the. Uh, we are not excluded there. And by that, I don't see anyone like a direct competitor. But the 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 area is still fresh. <laughs> let me let me put it that way. Ask me again in one year, and uh, yeah, I will, you know, I will. I'll, I, I, I'll, I believe. Yeah, I'll, I'll have you back. I'll have you back in a year, and we'll have the same conversation and see see where you are, which is great. You know, I mean, when you sold Imperva, there must have been competitors there that you beat out, right? Again, we we are we have a very uh, unique approach and philosophy uh, to, to the market and to application security in general. To be honest, the first time uh, I've heard from the founders about the, uh, from Idan, uh, Plotnik and Jonathan, uh, about the uh, solution, my jaw just dropped. As a veteran in the application security industry, this was not just news, but earth-shaking and a paradigm shift in the way that organizations should deal with application security from now on. And this is uh, so much time after that, I still feel like there is no competitor in the same scale and in the same maturity and very much not in the same even method that we are looking into. And that's why I'm struggling to find a direct uh, competitor that you are looking for. Yeah, no, I know. I I don't believe that you're being evasive at all. I, I think that you're right. I don't know any any competitors here. And uh, you guys, that's why when Alex originally contacted me, I was, I was floored, you know, I was like, can this be for real? Because you're absolutely right. This is a, this is a solution I haven't seen before. And it, it is revolutionary. Absolutely. So in terms of, you know, security by design, no, no question about it. Yeah. So thank you, Moshe, for taking the time out of your crazy schedule. I'm sure to join us today. Um, this is Moshe Zioni, the VP of Security Research at Apiro, and we will ask you to come back, not in a year, but in maybe six months and have another one of these and kind of see what's happened in the market. Now, we, you know, we're heading into a challenging moment here or two uh, in the next few months, and but, you know, cybersecurity is not going to stop, and so um, people still need to protect their PI and PII and IP and all the rest of it. So I'm sure that you should have a fantastically successful quarter here. Thank you very much, Steve. And uh, I'm looking forward for the next invitation. It was a very pleasant uh, discussion and very wise questions. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in another one of our unplugged reviews of the stuff that matters in cybersecurity and technology and our new digital landscape. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at CyberTheory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, 
visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.